Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you're encouraged by this message from the Vandalia, Michigan campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Our series on the book of 1 John this morning, looking at chapter 3. Of, so we're, we're looking at the whole chapter 3. So we're, we're going to go through a lot this morning. But... Um, so it's week four, last couple weeks we've covered a couple different things, but the, the series is called Be Light. What do we mean, be light? In, in the book of 1 John, it says that God is light, and we're to be imitators of God, and we're, to, and we're to shine the light of Jesus wherever we go. So this past weekend, uh, Bear Lake had a men's retreat. Some of us were at it, New Day, a lot of guys went from New Day. And, um, and at the retreat, Friday night, you know, it was raining, uh, so, so I had sadly lost in a cornhole competition late Friday night, around midnight. I'm just kind of hanging my head, walking back to my cabin. And, uh, and there's two different ways to go. One is like a little bit longer, but there's a, there's a road and there's lights. And you can see where you're going. The other way is just you have to walk through the field, but it's a, it's a, it's a straight angle. It's like, I don't, I don't really want to take the long way. I'll walk. But it was dark. And so I start walking, and my feet get swamped, covered, not waterproof shoes, covered, like just totally wet, soggy. And I, the point is, I was walking, <clears throat> excuse me, I was walking in darkness. I, I, knew, I knew where I wanted to go, but I, didn't, I couldn't see how to get there. I couldn't see the puddle. I couldn't, I couldn't see what was in front of me. And I was trying. I, I knew there was water, but boom, right into it. That's what happens when we're walking in darkness. Even, if you tr- even in trying to avoid the pitfalls, you can't see them because it's dark. Right? When we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him and he cleanses us from all sin. We, when we walk in the light of Jesus, we can see where we're going because he's, he's shining. He's, he's, he's illuminating the way before us. And so a couple weeks ago, Bill and Mary Lee taught us um, that, you know, the fact that God is light and we have fellowship with him by, by being in the light. If we say we have fellowship, but we walk in darkness, we're lying. And then, he, and then it says, if, if, it's, if we say that we have no sin, we're calling God a liar, because that's the reason Jesus came. We'll look at that this week, this, today. We learned from uh, Pastor Anthony the importance of, of not loving the world or the things of the world. And also how hating your brother is, is proof that, that the love of God is not in you. And then Pastor Cameron shared last week about the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. And anything that would try to detract and say that Jesus is not the Son of God and he did not come in the flesh, that is anti-Christ. That's anti-Jesus because that's the basis of our faith is that Jesus is the Son of God, that he came in the flesh, that he was crucified and that he resurrected from the grave in a, in a bodily form. <clears throat> One of the things we'll look at today is... is uh, is, is the fact that, that John is refuting false teaching throughout this letter. It's important to realize the type of false teaching that was happening so that when he's refuting it, you can say, oh, that's what he's doing right here. So a couple other things. And we've covered this in the past. We want to review it each week. But John's purpose in writing the letter of 1 John, as we know it, is at least threefold. There's, there may be other reasons, but we can tell from the writing itself these are, these are the reasons that he is writing is to refute false teaching, 
and to reassure, to actually comfort. He, he brings some hard words, but he's, but he's ultimately wanting to reassure the believers in their faith, in the life that they have in Jesus, and to describe what righteous living looks like. So this is, today we're going to look at really a practical example of what righteous living looks like. Throughout the sequence of 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, the command, love one another, is given seven times. A very explicit, love one another. This week, we're going to hear, is the only example, out of the seven, it's the only time that, Jesus, that John tells us a concrete example of what loving one another looks like. It's not, it's, it's, this is, this, it's not the only way to love one another, but John tells us this, this week in chapter 3, this is what it looks like to love one another. And if you don't do these types of things, how can the love of God be in you? That's the question that he asks. And that's the question we want to ask today. Oh, this fell off. Probably can't hear me. So, um, so this is kind of how we have it laid out. Overview of the chapter. Overview of 1 John 3. The first three verses set the whole thing up. And it's the declaration that we're children of God. That God has called us his children. And then from that point, it really has to be the basis of everything he says. From the point that that we are God's children, he says, now let's make sure we're his children by practice. Let's make sure that the way that we live affirms who who God says we are. So this is who God says you are. Now, Let's judge, judge yourself and say, do I, do I live, do I, do, I, do I live in the way that, that, that a, a child of God is supposed to live? It doesn't, it doesn't mean you're not a child of God, but it's a, it's a, it's a litmus test. It's a, hey, let's, let's look at this framework and see, am I, am I doing the things of God that, 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 that affirm or confirm the thing of God that God's done in my life? And so then in that, in that section, we got A, B, C, D, E, try to organize it a little bit. Different headings, different ways to, to, to walk through it uh, that, that we'll look at. So sin, sin versus righteousness, hate versus love. Love is movement, love is action. And then we have, how, this is how we have confidence before God. And then he sums it up, believe in Jesus and love each other. Those are the, those are the commands. So we're just going to walk through them together this morning. Sound good? Yeah. All right, so let's go. Section one. We're God's children by declaration. So let's read this. I'll read it. You don't have to read it with me. Verse one. See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we will be called children of God, and such we are. So this is like, we can read this, and we can say, okay, cool. I have heard that before. But... But we can't, let's not miss it. Like, this is a big deal. Everything else he says needs to be understood in light of this declaration. The word see is like, there's not exclamation point there, but there should be. Like, take notice. See. Like, oh, slow down. Slow down. Wait a second. This is, this is the incredible extent to which God has loved us, that he calls us his children. He says, you are my child. And if you're a Christian this morning, God God is saying that to you, and I want you to hear that among everything else I say. I want you to hear 
the word of confirmation that you are my child, that I love you. And I don't love you based off of what you do. I love you for who you are in me. And, but as any good father would, I want you to look like me. I want you to do the things that I do. I want you to know right from wrong. I want you to do the things that are right and righteous. So see how great a love the Father has given us or bestowed on us that we would be called children of God and such we are. For this reason, the world doesn't know us because it didn't know him. Again, John is writing this letter. He wrote the Gospel of John. This is the same language he uses in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. The world, the, he came to the world. The world didn't receive him. But anyone who does receive him is a child of God. Same language here. Verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him just as he is. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So when when Jesus appears, we will be like him. Like this this is the... This is the hope that purifies us because we want to be like Jesus. And we know that he's coming back. And so we know that, that our hearts are in, in, our, in our desire to be like Jesus, to look like Jesus. It purifies us because we're, we're heading in a direction. We're being conformed to his image. The, the, what's amazing about this section is that this, this hope is a, is a purifying catalytic hope that, that stirs up in us as we begin to look more and more like Jesus. And that God is calling us his children even before we completely reflect the image of his son. So God is making a declaration over us, saying, you are my, you are my child. And yet he's also implying a desire that we would look like Jesus. So this is the basis of everything else he says. God's love is great because he calls us his children even before we look like his son. Our aim as God's children is to look like his son. So let's see how we do. This is the rest of the section. Let's see how we do. Children by practice. Sin versus righteousness. So this is, I'll read two slides here. Verses 4 through 10. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins. And in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has ever seen him or knows him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. So this is a a firm and, and confounding passage. Like we, we learned in chapter 1, this is why it's paradoxical, we need to understand what John's trying to do here. We learned in chapter 1 
that anyone who, who thinks they have no sin is lying to themselves and they're lying to God. Right? And John's, John's circling back to this idea of sin, but from a different angle. He says, if, you, if you're in God, if you're a child of God, there is no sin in you. And if you're sinning, then you're not a child of God. The, the things that you're doing are saying something about who you are. And so judge by, by, the, by the, the basis of how you're living, what you're, who, who you, whose, you, whose you are. What's important here is this idea of practice. Six different times the word practice is used. Now, what do you, what do you practice? If you've ever played sports, you've had to practice. But it's not, just for, it's not just a sports thing. We all practice things all the time. That's how we get better at things. That's how we grow competent in things. That's how we learn to do things. Is we, we practice them. And so the question here is, are you practicing the things of God, the, the ways of God, or are you practicing the ways of evil, the ways of the devil, the, the characteristics of the evil one? And, there's, and there's, he doesn't give a list. He just says, sin and righteousness. Like in your, in your, just in the core, of, you, know, you know when things are wrong, and you know when things are right. And you have, you have a, a compelling reason for one and for the other. So he's not trying to, to make a list of do's and don'ts. He's just saying, you know what's right, you know what's wrong. When you do the things that are wrong, you're, you're, you're proving to yourself and everyone around you who you're drawn to. So practice, six times. The idea is to do or to make. It's to follow some method in expressing by deeds the, feeling and thought, the feelings and thoughts of the mind. So it's the outworking, Right? We get this idea in Scripture that sin isn't, isn't just the, the behavior, but it's also the, it's also the thoughts. But John is getting particular here. And he's saying, those who, by their actions, are doing the things. It's his, he's, really, he's really trying to pinpoint behavior. Because behavior, behavior proves its source. Like behavior verifies where it comes from. And so if you're doing the things of God... Well, then you're, you're shining a light on God. But if you're, if you're, if you're doing the things of, of the devil, then you're actually shining a light on, devil, on the devil. He is refuting false teachings. As we mentioned, that's probably not easy to read. The font looks small. I'll read it for you. So he's refuting false teachings. One of the false teachings that, that he's refuting is this idea that not, all you really need is knowledge. That knowledge is all important and that conduct is a minor matter. Particularly the early days of Gnosticism, it was, what was important was you had the right knowledge of, of, of who Jesus was. And there was a secret aspect to that knowledge. And so you had to really do a lot of spiritual things to attain to, to the secret aspects of Scripture. But as far as your behavior, as far as the way that you lived, as far as the way that you conducted your relationships, that really didn't matter. So John is speaking directly into this, and he's insisting that sin is evidence of wrong relationship with God. Like the existence of, like when you do the wrong things, then your, then your relationship with God is fractured. And if you think that it's not, well then this is, this John has something to say to you, but, but again, he's comforting believers. And he's trying to, to define the terms here. 
So he says, don't be deceived. Righteous actions prove righteousness. Sinful actions prove sinfulness. This section talks about two reasons that Jesus came. Then I want to look at them and then look at what, what, what John kind of puts in the middle of it. So two reasons in this section that we learn that Jesus came. Verse 5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And then verse 8, the Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. Which, which actually is saying the same thing in a, in a bigger, broader sense. The works of the devil are the acts of sin, are the things that lead to sin. So Jesus is, is cutting off the root, and he's addressing the behavior. He's doing, he's doing both. He's saying, I, the reason I came is because sinful, the humanity is sinful, and I've come to forgive them and restore them to God. And the source... And the, and the kind of the, the compelling nature of their sinfulness is, is demonic, and I've come to actually destroy him as well. Right? The, the devil's talked about in Scripture as the, the one who came to, to kill, steal, and destroy. I love it that it says that Jesus came to destroy him and his works. So Jesus is destroying the destroyer, which speaks to his, 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 his ability and his sovereignty and his, his superiority in all things. So, verse 5, verse 8, he, he came to take away sins and to destroy the works of the devil. No one who abides in him sins. And no one who sins has seen him or knows him. No one who practices sin is of the devil. Why? Because the devil is, has sinned from the beginning. And when, by, the, by the way that you live, by the actions that manifest from your heart, you're, you're, you're proving your source. Again, he's just, he's just saying, you are a child of God. That's the basis of everything I'm saying. But let's look at the way you live. Let's look at the, the things you do with your life, the way that you behave. And let's, let's try to, from that, judge your source. Judge where you come from and, and whose you are based off of the things that you do because that speaks loudly. That's what people see. And even if they don't see it, God sees it. So, what I want to clarify here is this idea that um, this, this, can, this can be a heavy passage. But ultimately, John's saying that your behavior is important. Don't think that, that you get a free ride on the way that you live just because you are a child of God. Don't let that be an excuse, Paul says. Don't let it be an excuse that God's forgiven you to go on and keep sinning. The, 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 the work of God in, in, in forgiving you and in, in calling you a child and in, in freeing you to live a life according to his, his ways and the right things to do is, is a ground to stand on to then, to then live the way of God. But, uh, but it's not, oh, I must not be a Christian because I'm, I'm sinning. But it's... it's, it's no, it's incompatible. The way that you're living is incompatible with who you are. If God says, you are my child, and, you're, and you continue to do the things that, he, that are displeasing to him, then God's saying, see the inconsistency. This is not who you are. I have not called you to this. Be who you are and do the things that are right. And we know that in Christ, we, we actually get, receive the freedom to do the things that, that God's called us to do. We're not bound and shackled by sin. It doesn't mean we don't sin, but it means we don't have to. Right. 
Like that's, not what this is, that's not what this is specifically mentioning, but we know from other passages that Jesus frees us from the power of sin and death. Yeah. Right? Which means that we have choice. Which means that we have the freedom to choose right and wrong. John, John's saying, do what's right. Do the things that you know are right. Because it will, it will speak to the fact that your origins are in God and not in the devil. So John's assumption at the start of this chapter is that his readers are children of God and that they believed in and are following Jesus. And now he's he's just simply pressing out what that's supposed to look like. What is this supposed to look like? Are you children by practice? Are you living as a child? So this next section, hate versus love, right? He he, he looks at, he uses the the language of hate and love, which he's used before. He's, he's, He's writing cyclically. Verse 11, for this is the message which you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Not as Cain, who was of the evil one and slew his brother, and for that reason he didn't, and for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Don't be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So now John's coming back to a common theme of his, which is love one another. Love one another. Cain killed Abel because his deeds, Abel's deeds, were righteous and his, and his were evil. So if, if we're able, don't be surprised if Cain wants to kill you. That's what it's saying. The world will want to kill you because you're able. But then, but then he, he uses that story from Cain and Abel to say, to actually ask the question, are you able? Like, are you in this story, are you able or in your indifference, in your lack of active love, are you more like Cain? Are you more like Cain who killed his brother? Or are you more like Abel whose deeds were righteous? Because if your deeds, if you're not actively loving, then, then by, a, by default, you're actually more like Cain in this story. Because Cain's deeds were righteous. Are your, are your, are your deeds righteous? Are you, are you actively loving people? Because if you're not actively loving people, then it looks like you're more like Cain. But Cain actively killed his brother, and you didn't actively kill anybody. And that's the, that's the kind of destabilizing part of what he's saying. is that you don't have to kill anybody. By not loving people, you're actually more killing people. And ha- you're, you're hating people by not loving them. In other words... A lack of active love for one another is, is, is uncomfortably close to active hate for them. That's what it's, it feels like what it, that's what it's saying. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't say that we hate people by not loving them. But he's saying, by not loving your brother, by not loving your sister actively, seeing the need and responding to it, you're looking like Cain who hated his brother and out of the hate, he killed. Out of the hate, he murdered. So now we think, okay, love is a big deal. Not just love in theory, but love in action. 
Love in action is a big deal. And so then John uses that story to talk about what love in action looks like. Because when we don't, when we don't love, we, we hate. We kill. And then he says, no haters have eternal life abiding in them. But he's essentially defining hater as one who's not actively loving. So indifference and inactivity is not a, a free pass. You need, to, you need to look like Jesus, who actively laid down his life with love. So this is the next section. He, he uses that basis, Cain and Abel's story, to then say that love is active. Love is movement. Verse 16. We know love by this, that he, Jesus, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. This is... This is the climax of John's logic. This is, this, is the, 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 this is where he's going. We want to love like Jesus. We want to look like Jesus. We want to love like Jesus. What did Jesus do? He laid down his life for his brothers. What are we to do? We're to lay down our life for our brothers and for each other. What's, what's important to mention here, John's, John's having an in-house conversation with, with, his, with his church. This Brothers here is actually specifically the people of faith, right? If God is the Father, your brothers are the people, and your brothers, it's a masculine plural, brothers and sisters, the collective people of God. They are your siblings in the faith. That doesn't mean we're not to love the neighbor outside of the family. It doesn't mean we're not to love the enemy, both things that Jesus says. But this is a conversation about loving your brothers and sisters who, who go to the same church as you. Who, who have the same father as you. This is, this is why I mean it's an in-house conversation. And so the challenge is we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's not theory. That's movement. Yeah. That involves moving your body, laying down. Right? Just yesterday at the, at the retreat, the... Uh, the speaker gave a great analogy. He says, if I'm walking, Mark, can you stand up? Be a helpful example. So, okay, we, there's, there's a cliff here, and there's a big wall here, and we have this little lane, and I'm walking, and I need to get that way, and Mark needs to get this way. How, how are we going to do this? Right? I could throw Mark off, or he could throw me off the cliff, and then we'd die. Or I could lay down, and you could walk over me. Sure. Okay. You get the deal. So, so that's the theory. Or we could, or we could get really close and try to turn, but that's kind of scary because you could go off balance. The point is, you lay, you actually inconvenience yourself. You lay down. You you get on the floor and lay down to make room for the other person to thrive, for the other person to 
to be, for, for their needs to be met. That's good, Jimmy. This is an inconvenient posture, right? And, and it's sacrificial. Right. It's dirty. It's, it's humbling. But Jesus says, I came not to, not to be served, but to serve. And he washes his disciples' feet. He loves them by serving them, by laying down his life for them and for us. And then he calls us, hey, I want you to look like me in this. I want you to look like me. I want you to lay down your life for the people in your life who go, who go to the same church as you, who are of the same family as you, who have the same father as you. But then he gives, this is the concrete example I was talking about. Verse 17. The only, only time he, he, he puts a specific description to what love looks like. Verse 17, I'll read it again. Whoever has the world's goods sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him. How does the love of God abide? So there's three words I want to look at. Has, sees, and closes. You have something, you see the need, and you shut the door. That's what, that's what this idea is. The cl- closing your heart is, I'm going to shut the door to my heart. The hard issue is that you've closed it. And we, we want to, at the bottom of script, we want to talk about, hey, what's the hard issue? Where, where, what's really going on here? Where's your heart at? If we use that language, we're saying, hey, in the core of you, like, where's the issue? You're manifesting this behavior, but something's going on inside. Whether it's unforgiveness or bitterness or hurt or anger or apathy. Here are the hard issues that you've actually closed your heart. To the, to the need to love and the command to love. And this has, this is daunting. Like, this is, incon- this is severely, inc- not just inconvenient, but can be paralyzing. Because there's a, there's a lot of need out there. And yet he doesn't say, now, Granted, there's a lot of need, and I want you to follow the Spirit on this. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean he's not saying that, but he's, just, he's putting this out there as because, because Jesus loved so radically and, and gave himself so radically and were to follow in his steps so radically that he doesn't need a disclaimer. He doesn't need us to, to comfort us by saying, well... Only, only to the extent that the Holy Spirit really prompts you. Or only to the extent that, that it's very obvious and you're the only person who could possibly solve the situation. He just says, when you see a brother in need and you have the world's goods and you close your heart, opening your heart doesn't even mean that you necessarily have, have, have the exact resources for that person, but it means your heart's open. To the, to the possibility that God would want to use you to love this person. We want to have open hearts. I think if we're to, we're to generalize this and apply it to all of us, we want to live a love that's laid down, that's willing to lay down for one another with an open heart. Say, hey, my heart's open. My heart's open to you and my heart's open to God. And when I see you in need... My heart's open to respond to that need. 
this takes a couple things, right? This is implying close-knit community. Why? Because for many of us, even if we have a need, we're not vulnerable enough to share the need. We need to be in community. In order, I don't even know if Mark has a need unless he tells me he has a need because he lives in a different neighborhood and, and he, his clothes are still nice. Like he's, He looks fine. He's doing fine as far as I can tell unless I can tell by his emotions that he's not doing well. I would need him to tell me, hey, there's, there's this thing going on and I don't really know what to do. Could you pray for me? Or maybe he can even have the boldness. Could you help me? I don't want to be a beggar, but this is real. Yet again, we live in, I mean, we live in a, a culture where we're very privatized. We're very individualized. We don't really talk about our need very much. We don't really allow there to be a conversation about, hey, I'm needy in this way, or hey, I'm struggling in this way. But when we, when we, when we do that, we're actually depriving the community of an of an, of a opportunity to respond yeah. with love to that need. And so we feel like we're being self-protective and just we don't want to inconvenience anybody, but God's actually calling us to inconvenience each other and to be inconvenienced by each other. And it's not even the right word, but it's the way we can think about it. To love one another. So this is at the same time it's an it's a it's a challenge to be active in loving. It's also a challenge to be active in sharing your need with one another. Because if I don't share my needs with you and you don't know, then you don't have an opportunity to love me by your actions. Not just love me with words or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. He's really pressing into the demand of God to use whatever you have by your actions to love somebody. That's not necessarily giving them money. It might be, but it might be just time and it might be other resources and it might be connections that you have. The question isn't what is it, but it's where's your heart? Is your heart open to love? Is your heart open or are you shutting the door? The door is a good analogy because that's the word that's used elsewhere. Closing, it's, it's a door word. Is the door open to be able to respond or is it closed in isolation? Not even available to God. God, I'm not actually available for you to use me to love this person. I've closed the door. It's, very, it's all about me. When we close the door, we only can care about the things that are in the house. But when we open the door, we can see the need of somebody in another house. And that's what he's saying here. Love is movement. Love is action. Love is doing something. And that's how you know you're a child of God. So then he uses that. He uses that, that example to then talk about how, how we can feel about it. So in verse 19, it keeps going. It says, we will know by this, by what? By loving in deed and truth. By doing the things, by opening your heart to one another and being willing to respond to their need. By this we will know we are of the truth. And we will assure our heart before him. In whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our hearts and knows all things. 
So I'll just stop there at verse 20. What is this saying? This is saying we respond out of love. We love somebody. We, we meet a need, whatever it is, and we still have a feeling that I'm not good enough, that God doesn't love me. My heart's condemning me. I didn't provide enough. I didn't do enough. My heart's condemning me. And God says, God, it says God's greater than our heart. God's greater than how we feel about ourselves. God's greater than if you feel like you've done enough. And he knows all things, and he knows that you look like his child because you love like his son. Yeah. And he says, no, I don't care how you feel. You're my child because you look like Jesus, because you're laying down your life for one another. So even if our heart condemns us, God's greater than that feeling of condemnation, and he knows our heart, and he knows all things. Verse 21, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. There's an incredible confidence that comes in our relationship with God by looking like Jesus and doing the things that Jesus did. When you love like Jesus, you love in action. You lay down your life for one another. If your heart doesn't condemn you because you know that God sees you and, and knows you, then we can have confidence before God, ask boldly, receive thankfully, and know that he is pleased with you. He is pleased with you. And we know that even, like we, want, we, want, we know as a, as a matter of principle that our identity is rooted not in what we do, but in who we are. That's why John starts, you are a child of God. You are children of God. But that does not mean that your actions are inconsequential. It doesn't mean that your behavior doesn't matter. It means that your behavior needs to prove who you already are. And so we can, have, we can know that we're pleasing in his sight because we have a couple check marks. I have kept his commandments. I've loved, I've, I've been a laid down lover. I've been somebody who's have, have had an open heart and been able to respond to the needs of my community. And with that, I can have confidence before God. With that, I can ask and receive. With that, I can know full well. I can be sure-hearted in knowing that I am pleasing in his sight. And then he, he concludes with, with rehashing a couple commands. Verse 23, this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he commanded us. The one who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. We know this, that he abides, no, we know by this that he abides in us, by the spirit whom he has given us. So the commands that he gives are believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. By this we know that we abide in him. So I, this is a little abide circle. So us, moving on the top, moving over to Jesus. We know that we abide in Jesus when we, believe, when we believe in Jesus and we love one another. That's how we know we abide. But how do we know that Jesus abides in us? By the Holy Spirit whom he's given to us. By the, te- by the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Who abi- so we want both of these. Right? We, want the, we want to be circled in... <laughs> we want to abide in Christ. And know... This is how we know we abide in Jesus. By, do, by, by 
obeying His commands. What are His commands? Believe in Him and love one another. We want, we want the Holy Spirit to abide in us. How do we know? By the Holy Spirit. By, by the understanding and the, and, the, and the conversation and the engagement with the Holy Spirit who lives in you. The, like I said, the internal testimony of the Spirit of God in our life. So the Word's gone out. The Word has gone out. You are a child of God. You're a child of God. That's who you are. I love you. You're my child. But now we need to get used to who we already are. We need to start walking in the shoes of who we already are in Christ. We need to start looking like children whose daddy is God, the Father, and whose son has laid down his life for us that we would lay down our lives for one another. There is some acclimation to the climate of, of, of the kingdom of God. You have to acclimate. Right? I went on a trip a couple years ago to Colorado, and I went running. And I was immediately winded because I was not acclimated to the higher climates. But this, the climate of the kingdom is not higher, it's lower. In the sense that you need to get lower and, and be a laid-down lover to where you, you don't claim any privileges by who you are in Christ. You actually know you're so rooted in Him that you can lay down and let somebody walk over you to get to where they need to be. This is, who, this is what God commands us to do, is to love one another and to follow the way of Jesus, who, who is the Son of God, but who also did the things of God, who, who also looked like God in His life by the way that he lived, and we're called, we're called to follow in his steps. So, Father, we thank you that, that you've given us the example of Jesus, not just the example, but, the, but the, the work of Christ for us on the cross. God, we ask for the, for the courage and for the, the prompting of your spirit to see and to respond to love in word and, de- and, tr- and to love in word but also to love in deed to love with our actions to love with our behavior to do the right things by this we know we are children of God we have confidence before him and we know that we're pleasing in his sight that whatever we ask we can receive God, we receive the declaration that we're children of God. And we also receive the the commissioning to act like it. The command to, to look like Jesus with the way that we love each other. To help us, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.